Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for that grace. We thank You for a grace that reaches us no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been. Thank You, Father, for a grace that whispers our name and reaches out to us in the depths of our despair. Open our eyes and hearts now, Lord, to see Your grace right where we are and right where we need it most. In the precious name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. In the 1920s, the early part of the 1920s, something very unique took place. There was a large comparative religions conference that took place at uh, Oxford University. And it brought together the greatest theologians, the most well-respected religious studies experts in all the world. Great scholars all gathered together. and, And at one point... They were in a spirited debate. And the the topic of the debate was, what is unique about Christianity? Someone suggested that Christianity was unique because what sets it apart from other religions was the concept of incarnation. The idea that God took human form in Jesus. But someone quickly said, well, actually other faiths believe that God appears in human form. And another scholar suggested, well, what about resurrection? The belief that death is not the final word, that the tomb was found empty. Someone slowly shook his head. He said, though they're unsubstantiated, other religions have accounts of people returning from the dead. So the debate got more and more spirited and much louder. Then as the stories told, In walks to the room, C.S. Lewis. Tweed jacket, pipe in hand, arm full of papers, a little early for his presentation. He sat down and took in the conversation, which by now had evolved into a pretty fierce debate. Finally, during a lull, he spoke up and said, Gentlemen, what's, what's all this rumpus about? Everyone turned in his direction and trying to explain themselves. They said, well, we're debating what's unique about Christianity. Oh, that's easy, he said. It's grace. And the auditorium fell silent. Lewis continued that Christianity uniquely claims God's love comes free of charge. No strings attached. No other religion, he said, can make that claim. After a moment of silence, someone commented, you know, gents, I think Lewis has a point. Buddhists, for example, they follow an eightfold path to enlightenment. It's not a free ride. Hindus believe in karma, another suggested, and that your actions continually affect the way the world will treat you, that there's nothing that comes to you that's not set in motion by your own actions. Someone else observed that in the Jewish code of the law, it implies that God has requirements for people to be acceptable to Him. And of course, in Islam, said another one, God is a God of judgment, not a God of love. You live to appease Him. 
The discussion continued, and, and at the end, everyone concluded that, yeah, Lewis was exactly right. Only Christianity dares to proclaim God's love is unconditional. An unconditional love we call grace. Grace. Grace is what? It's giving us something which we don't deserve. And giving it to us without reservation or condition. God is the author of grace. He wrote the book on grace when He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the manifestation of grace. He is grace embodied. He came on a mission of grace. We're going to talk a little bit today. He would enter Jerusalem for that final week which would culminate in His crucifixion and His death. The definitive act of grace. But what we're going to look at is something He did a few days prior to His arrival in Jerusalem. On His way to the cross, Jesus took time for a most important act of grace in a city called Jericho. I've talked a lot about Jericho lately. The last two sermons I preached featured this key city of Jericho. And today we're going to return to Jericho some 1,500 years after the walls came down. And we return not for a key battle or a war, but for a very important search and rescue mission. Jesus stops by Jericho on His way to the cross not to rescue a nation or a city or a community, but to personally offer grace and eternal redemption to one man. Turn with me to our text this morning. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We're going to read straight through to verse 10. And the verses will also be displayed on the video screens off to the side. Here's Jesus passing through on His way to Jerusalem, on His way to the cross, and He's in Jericho. Verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a story. 
What a story of redemption, of transformation. What a story of a life changed by a personal interaction with Jesus Christ. When Jesus passes by, your life should change. We're going to dive into this story today and we're going to look at three important takeaways from this powerful conversion. Three points that really define the heart of God's grace. First, what do we know about Zacchaeus? He isn't mentioned in Scripture up to this point. And other than being vertically challenged, what do we know about him? Well, judging by the crowd's reaction we just read, we know he was hated. Jesus was criticized for going to be the guest of a sinner. Well, why the hatred? Well, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Public sentiment toward tax collectors or publicans in Jesus' day was that they were the scum of the earth. Not much has changed. In the Gospels, we're told really no less than eight times that people complained about Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. It's as if there were sinners and there was a special class of sinners called tax collectors. Twice in the Gospels, people complained of Jesus eating with tax collectors and harlots. Harlots were women who sold their virtue for money. Apparently, tax collectors were viewed as having the same vice. It's, it's not like today. It's not like he worked for the IRS. Few of us today like IRS agents, but usually we don't hate them. They collect taxes that are necessary for the building of roads and, and the maintenance of of public things that are good. They do a good work. But by contrast, tax collectors of that time, in the day of Jesus, they were viewed as traitors. Men like Zacchaeus were individuals who betrayed their own people. Why? Well, Zacchaeus didn't work for the nation of Israel. He worked for the Romans. And the Romans were a hated people. They were occupiers of Israel. They were cruel and mean people. They were arrogant. Zacchaeus was associated with them. He worked for them. He's not one of us, they felt. And not only were, were they viewed as traitors, they were seen as thieves. The Romans exacted a tax from the Jews, which was bad enough, but they, they didn't pay their tax collectors. Tax collectors made a living by adding an additional percentage on top of the Roman tax. And there was no law to govern it. There were no rules about what was fair. They usually added whatever they thought the person could pay. So a savvy tax collector could make very good money without having to worry about being fair. So publicans or tax collectors were hated men. And on top of this, Zacchaeus' job required him to have constant contact with Gentiles. So this would make him ceremonially unclean. That meant he couldn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices like everyone else. He was robbed of his ability to worship God. So this effectively separated him from his God. So here was Zacchaeus, cut off from his people, alienated from his God. Why on earth would he take this job? Well, nobody cared for him anyway, he felt. People mistreated and and rejected and ridiculed him all his life. 
because of his height. And he felt God obviously didn't care either. Why else would he create him a short man, an object of ridicule? So he took comfort in his job. Zacchaeus liked his job. He wasn't just a tax collector. We're told he was chief tax collector. Now he was a big man. People feared him. They may have hated and loathed him, but they feared him. He was a man of power and influence, and he was rich. He made his fortune from legalized theft. And I suspect you can imagine he made it a practice to especially gouge people that had mistreated him in the past. He was getting back for all the pain that he had been caused. So, materially, Zacchaeus had everything a man could want. Power, riches, control of his life and control of others. He built walls around himself designed to insulate him from the insults and indignities of the past. But all he had, all his wealth, all his, his titles of position, all his power, all those walls of security he built in his life, they weren't enough. Zacchaeus wanted more. Not more money or more power. He had plenty of both. He was searching for something in his life that was missing. He had no joy. He had no fulfillment, no contentment, and no purpose. Can you identify with Zacchaeus today? Have you spent your life accumulating what you thought you always wanted? Have you spent your life building up walls to protect yourself from hurt? Have you spent your life trying to get back at all those who had caused you pain? A mission of revenge. Have you spent your life on a mission of wealth, position, importance? And at the end of your quest, you find your hands are empty. It isn't enough. It leaves you wanting more. Something is missing. That's where Zacchaeus found himself. And he believed that Jesus might just have the answer he was looking for. Word had reached Zacchaeus that Jesus was passing through. And now he's more than just a little curious. See, there's something about Jesus that touches a, a hidden cord in his soul. It's been rumored that Jesus doesn't care who you are, what you've done or what you look like. Zacchaeus was searching and thankfully he was searching in the right place. Maybe he thought, maybe, just maybe, this, this Jesus could give him the acceptance that he's craved. And the visit of Jesus to Jericho might just be his last opportunity. The chance may not come around again. In fact, it didn't. So Zacchaeus rushes out to the street. He can't get through. It's, it's a mass of people. Nobody helps him, of course. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants him there. And you can see him jumping up and down, trying to catch a glimpse of this Jesus. And then he sees the tree. Thank God for that tree. Has he put trees in your life at just the right time? He sees the tree, a sycamore tree. 
And sycamore trees of that region were fig trees. They had wide branches. They were low to the ground, easily climbable even for a child. So he climbs the tree. No one's there. He takes the opportunity and he waits. And he watches. And then along comes Jesus. The people are crowding around him, trying to get his attention, touching his clothes, calling his name. And with gentleness and kindness, Jesus slowly makes his way through the crowd, speaking to people as he passes. And Zacchaeus watches in amazement. Who is this man? He's looking at the one who claims he's the very Son of God. Something is different about him. And then he hears it. He hears a word that makes his heart drop into his stomach. He hears a word that instantly makes every hair on the back of his neck stand at attention. He hears his name spoken by the Son of God. Zacchaeus. This brings us to our first point today. He knows you. What a shock it must have been for Zacchaeus to find out that Jesus knew who he was. Zacchaeus, who had probably been called every unmentionable name in the book, must have thought, he knows my name. How does he know me? Jesus knew his name for the same reason he knows your name. Because he's God. He knows everybody's name. And the second thing Zacchaeus thought, okay, he knows me. What does he know about me? What has he heard? Friend, God knows you. He knows you inside and out. He knows what makes you tick. He knows everything you've ever done, every word you've ever said, every thought you've ever thought. He knows every act of kindness you've ever performed and every act of cruelty and hatred. He knows every disappointing sin. He knows your character, your habits, your tendencies. He knows all about your fears and frets. He knows what keeps you up at night. He knows what brings joy to your heart and a smile to your face. He knows you better than you know yourself. And the mystery of grace is this, that he loves us. He loves you anyway. Despite all the good, the bad and the mostly ugly of our human nature, God loves us madly. Look what Look what it says in Isaiah 43 and verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You may think you're all alone in this world. Nobody knows you. Nobody cares. But there's a loving God who created the universe. And He knows you. He knows you intimately and He loves you anyway. Psalm 139 Verses 1 to 4 tell us, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. He knows you. You matter 
to God. Do you think there was anyone else in that region that would give a second thought to helping Zacchaeus? Was there any other living being on earth who thought Zacchaeus was anything but worthless? To the Jews, he was hated. To his community, he was a traitor. To the Romans, he was easily replaceable. He was vile, despicable. He didn't count. He didn't matter. Was there anyone who cared about him? Only Jesus. That's all that mattered. Zacchaeus mattered to Christ. Despite who he was, despite what he'd done, despite how he lived, Jesus cared for Zacchaeus. You may be afraid to get close to Jesus because you think, well, he's going to scold me for, for the way I've lived, for all the things I've done wrong. But Jesus never comes in judgment. He wants to let you know how much he loves you. Isaiah 49, 15 to 16. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for a child she has born? Even if that were possible, I would never forget you. See, I have engraved your name on the palms of my hands. When Jesus died on the cross, stretched out his arms and soldiers put nails through his hands, your name was engraved there. When we get to heaven, there'll be no scars on anyone except Jesus. He's going to wear those scars. He's going to have those scars for all eternity to remind you how much he loves you. To say, do you think I could forget you? Not a chance. This is how much you matter to me. Jesus knows you. He cares for you. And he wants you. Our second point. He knows what you need. When Jesus called Zacchaeus' name, I'm sure half the people that were there were shocked that he'd even address such a vile man. And the other half, they couldn't wait for Jesus to bring judgment upon him. Oh, good. Oh, good. Jesus saw that guy. <sighs> that heathen. That thief who's oppressed us. That, that crook who's been stealing from us all these years. Good. Now, now he's going to get what he deserves. Now Jesus will blast him out of that tree. We can be free from his theft and his threats. And you know what? Jesus could have. He had every right. He had every right to punish Zacchaeus for what he had caused, the hurt he had caused, the injustice and the pain. But Jesus didn't come with a hand of judgment. He came offering grace. Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I, I want to go to your house today. Zacchaeus, let's talk. I know how you hurt and I can fix it. That's mercy. That's grace. Zacchaeus, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been, only where you're going. That's grace. Friend, have you experienced God's grace? Have you experienced Him giving you what you don't even remotely deserve? Charles Spurgeon and, and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. And they were good friends. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of children 
admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Well, that was enough for Parker, for Spurgeon. Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. He said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is, is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they use to take an offering for the orphanage. So I suggest we take a love offering here instead for them. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plate three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's door. It was Spurgeon. He said, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved, but what I needed. Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and knew exactly what he needed. He didn't need a heavy hand of discipline. Jesus could have scolded him, told him to repent. But he knew that Zacchaeus already felt tortured for what he'd done. That's evident from his response a few verses later. It's evident from the very fact that he's here. He's looking for help. Zacchaeus felt bad enough for his crimes. He needed a solution. He needed forgiveness. He needed love. And Jesus came in grace offering exactly what was needed. You know, when you're not living right with God, when you're living a life of sin, chances are you know it. You know it. You don't need someone preaching to you to tell you about your sin. You need someone to tell you about a Savior. Friend, He knows what you need today. John 3.17 tells us, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. I love in the Gospels how every time someone comes to Jesus with their problems, He'll, he'll, he'll heal our ailments, Lord. Every time they came for Him to cure their diseases, open their eyes, to touch their, their leprosy, to make them walk when they were crippled, whatever it is that they thought they needed, what's the first thing Jesus always did? Forgive their sins. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because He knows the top need in your life. Priority one. Before He can work in your life, He has to reconcile you to God. And that can't be done if there is sin standing between you and God. Friend, God is not going to work in your life. He's not going to give you peace. He's not going to fulfill your needs and fill your heart with joy and restore what's broken in your life until you first have a personal relationship with Him. Until you've been reconciled to Him. If you don't have that, guess what? Your greatest need isn't what you think. Your greatest need isn't, isn't happiness or peace, a, a better job, a nicer house, great friends. Your greatest need is forgiveness of your sins and salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And He offers it to you today. He brings it to you. 
I had a mathematics class at, at Cal. It was called discrete mathematics. Best math class ever. But I always hated one thing about the professor. I shouldn't say hated, I know, but I hated this. <laughs> You'd go to him with a question, something you didn't understand, a problem you, you couldn't solve. And he'd always say things like this, kind of arrogantly too. Well, for the answer to that, look into whatever, combinatorics, set theory, orthogonal polynomials, some dead guy's formula, whatever. Look into this. And you walk away thinking, um, okay, thanks, I guess. Don't tell me that a solution exists. Don't tell me what to look into. Don't, don't tell me about a solution. Give me the solution. It's exactly what Christ did. He not only knows what you need, He brings it to you. He delivers it to you. He presents the solution in front of you and all you have to do is accept it. He knows you better than you know yourself. Two, he knows what you really need. And our final point is not only does he know you and not only does he know what you need, he knows what you can become. You know what the name Zacchaeus means? Pure one. Wow, that's the last thing you would think of when you think of a corrupt government official. He was anything but pure. And yet Jesus calling Zacchaeus by name was essentially saying, Hey, pure one, I'm coming to your house today. Jesus was affirming what he saw in Zacchaeus, not what he was. Pure one, me? Faithful servant? Me? Pronouncer of the gospel, me? Spiritual giant, who, who me? The apple of his eye, you must have the wrong person. No, he sees what you can become. I came home from work the other day and my daughter Haley, age five, said, Daddy, come look. We caught eight butterflies today. And I thought, wow, that's, that's not easy. Eight butterflies. So I went to the garage and looked at the the little chamber they held them in. And I'm expecting to see a flurry of, of colorful wings. And I didn't. I saw eight slimy, creeping, ugly caterpillars. And I said, Haley, where are the butterflies? Right there, Daddy. Do you see them? And no, I just see some caterpillars here. Yes, 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 but they will become butterflies, Daddy. One day, Jesus knows all about your one day. It was such a picture of how God sees us. Not as we are, but as we can become. He sees us as what we can become. He sees us as who we can become. And we spend our time looking back, looking at our past. Past failures, past defeats, past faults. You know, one of the greatest sources of insecurity is the past. We waste our thoughts over them. Past regrets. Wishing things could have been different. 
Don't wish. It's not going to change a thing. We're gripped by the failures of our past. What if I... What if it happens again? What if this? We spend our time living in fear that our past is going to catch up to us. You know what? Here's the thing. God is big enough to forgive the past and He's big enough to protect your past from rearing its ugly head in your present. See, God doesn't define people by their past, but on their potential, on where they're headed in the future. It's the common standard in society today. We label people on what they've done, on their past. Even when they change their ways, the past keeps defining them. I'm guilty of it. We all do it. Hey, there's that guy. He used to be an addict. Yeah, she used to be of ill repute. You know, they're the ones who used to live together. The past, still defining. Notice, even though the person changes, we still define them on their past. God doesn't do this. He doesn't define people based on their past, but on their potential. On where they're headed in the future. On what they can become in Him. We look and we see former addict. And he sees future minister. We look and we categorized someone gripped by fear. And he sees future overcomer. Isn't it good to know that when God forgives your sins, he forgives them forever. He remembers them no more. Have you ever caught someone when someone wrongs you and, and then asks for your forgiveness and you say, I'll forgive, but uh, I'll never forget. I've done it. Grudge keepers. Hurt harborers. That's not God. That's not His way. He forgives and He instantly and eternally forgets. He sees your future, never your past. He knows you. He knows what you need and He knows what you can become in Him. That's grace. That's grace in a nutshell. That's grace that only God can offer. And guess what? It doesn't exist anywhere else. Have you ever heard of this happening anywhere else in any other walk of life? It doesn't happen. Do you ever hear that a, a convicted criminal who's been sentenced to death, who's received the death penalty, is called in by name to the, the judge and given his freedom because the judge knows that he'll become a rehabilitated citizen one day. It'll never happen. Only God, only with God do we find that kind of grace. And let's look at Zacchaeus' response. Verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the proper response to grace. Forgive me, Lord. I want to change. I will change. Not starting tomorrow, not starting next week, 
Not when I finish this or that or, or when I accomplish this or, or, or when I experience this first. Here and now. I love that he said that. That's the result of salvation. That's change. Salvation doesn't just mean an interaction with Jesus. We crossed paths. It's not an experience. It's a transaction. A transaction that results in something. See, there has to be evidence of salvation. We can't always right our wrongs the way Zacchaeus did, but once we're saved, we make a turn. We don't live that way anymore. Our life changes. Our focus changes. Our priorities shift. It becomes evident in our lives. Something's different. Something is different. Matthew 7.16 says you can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You will know them by how they act. You will know they're saved. Wait, wait, wait. Who are we to determine who, who's saved and who's not? Only God knows. Right? Wrong. This is one of the ignorant lies of the politically correct apologists who are afraid to draw a line in the sand and call it like it is. They're afraid to offend anyone. That is not what the Bible says. You will know them by their fruit. It's pretty clear. What does that mean? That means salvation is a personal event that results in very public evidence. Your outlook changes. Your speech changes. Your priorities change. Your attitude changes. Your life produces fruit that it didn't used to. And don't you think people notice the evidence? It begs the question then that a lot of people don't want asked. Is there evidence of your salvation? Are there fruits in your life that can be attributed to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? The opportunity is before you today. Jesus is passing by. That same grace that reached out to Zacchaeus is reaching out to you today. That same name that was called the same voice that called it is calling yours today. Jesus is passing by. He's whispering your name. Grace is present today. It's reaching out for you. We know how Zacchaeus responded, right? We know the changes he made in his life. Friend, what's your response to God's grace today? Jesus is passing by this very hour and He's calling your name. Listen to His voice. He may not come again. Your heart may never be in the same softened condition as it is today. This may be your last chance. The last chance that you're exactly feeling this way, thinking this way, and standing at the threshold of salvation. 
how will you respond? Don't give in to fear. Don't, don't give in to pride. Don't put it off another minute. It doesn't matter what others around you think. It doesn't matter what, what others around you will say. All that matters is your response to Jesus' offer of salvation. In the end, the question will be asked, is his name, is her name written in the book of life? Don't let the answer be no. They, they were afraid to give up their lifestyle. No, they, they were afraid what their friends would think. No, they were too busy with their other pursuits. No, they let that last opportunity slip by. Don't let the pettiness of the temporary keep you from the assurance of the eternal. Say yes. Say yes to Christ and let Him take the burden of your past and dissolve it. Say yes to Christ and let Him forgive the sins that have plagued you and haunted you and held you in guilt. Say yes to Christ and let Him replace the anxiety, the restlessness that you have. Let Him replace that with true peace that nothing can take away. Say yes to Christ and let Him guarantee for you an eternity in heaven with Him forever. Today, say yes to Christ and let it be said of you like it was of Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not giving up on us ever. Thank you for the incomparable gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross of Calvary in our place for our sins. Thank you for grace that is passing by today. Our earnest prayer, Lord, for those that don't know you personally today is that they take hold of that grace. We pray that they accept the free gift of salvation that only you offer. Grace is calling their name this morning, Father. It's our desire and our prayer that they answer that call. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen.